The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, church. Grace and peace to all of you. Welcome to those of you here. Welcome to all you who are online. Thank you for joining us. So I have some bad news, and I have some good news. Bad news is, kids, trunk or treat is canceled tonight. Good news is, parents, you don't have to stand out in the cold. That's good news. Actually, that's the reason why uh, we are canceling trunk or treat. The temperature is already really cold. But for those of you that think we're being wimps, it's supposed to boo by this afternoon and by this evening. And for um, just the safety and enjoyment of everyone, uh, we're going to not do that outside tonight. Uh, We are in the book of Revelation, Citizens of a Different Kingdom. And today we're in chapter 15 and 16. So I want to begin by reading a portion of what was read earlier by Noah and Josh. Chapter uh, 15, beginning in verse 1. He says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues, Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and the image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great And marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. God, as always, for your word, we give you thanks. And we ask for gifts from you this morning. You say to those who have ears, let them hear. So we ask for ears to hear. And not only that, but hearts that will follow and lives that will obey. God, I ask for the gift of preaching. In the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. Amen. Well, Lisa is totally right. Revelation is just weird. I mean, it's strange. And it's complicated. It really is. And it, gets, it doesn't get any easier as the book goes along. In fact, you get to 15 and 16... And it's a very strange and complicated scene to us, for sure. I mean, there's a sea of glass glowing with fire. There's a beast. There's sores. And there's blood. And there's fire from heaven and darkness. There's lightning and angels. There's golden sashes and smoke. There's harps. And there's plagues. And then there's the bowl the wrath of God. 
That's a really strange and complicated scene to us. But let me give you a, a scene that's perhaps more familiar and more simplistic for us. When my kids were growing up, it was inevitable that sometimes one kid would get something that another kid would not get. A piece of candy, a certain type of food, a gift, a toy. And it was also inevitable that when one kid would get something that another kid would not get, it was inevitable that the other kid or the other kids would say the words, that's not fair. You ever heard that before? To which the parents would say, parents, life is not fair. Okay, kids, help me out. To which when you say that's not fair and your parents say what? Life is not fair. That's what they would say, right? Do you notice how parents say it differently than kids? Parents say, life's not fair. Kid goes, life's not fair, I know. But that scene is not strange or complicated to us. Because life is not fair. And when we get to Revelation 15 we get to the strangeness of this text. I mean, you get all this weird, as Lisa put it, Alice in Wonderland type language. But you also get to this strange part, and it's become strange to us in a sense, about words like judgment and wrath. Judgment and wrath could be viewed, I think, in different ways. And typically, we think about it in terms of fear. When I talk to students or when I talk to Christians, they'll often talk about the judgment with fear or the potential that this is something we should be afraid of. And while that may be true in a sense, in a case... The church, by and large, we've abandoned fire and brimstone types of language as a pastoral strategy in favor of a Jesus loves you approach. And by the way, I think that's a good thing. Because fire and brimstone often fill people with fear with guilt, leading them to feel both about themselves and oftentimes, later on in life, leading them to feel not good about who God is, to be honest with you. I know lots of people like that, to be fair. And so I think it is a good thing that fire and brimstone preaching is gone. And the we struggled with this idea about judgment and then receiving the mercy and the grace of God. That's the good news. In fact, we as Christians, we know that. We sing that. Even this morning, we sing, what can wash away my sin? And we know it's nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's right. And so once we know that, once we know about the grace of God, 
Whom then shall I fear? And that's a good thing. But dropping altogether the language of judgment, even wrath, results in an incomplete message. Because judgment and wrath, I don't think Christians think about it. We've been taught to think this way too often. Although there are lots of Christians that do, but I don't think they've been taught to think this way about judgment and wrath. We've been taught, and, and probably more of us that are older, remember those types of sermons about judgment and wrath. Maybe even some of us strangely miss them. I don't know, but we remember those sermons. A lot of us are glad that they're gone. But we've been taught to think about judgment and wrath as fear. You should fear that. And many Christians throughout their life, one thing that we didn't, I don't think we learned that well, is that judgment in Scripture, at least the way John talks about it, is not about fear, but it's about hope. That the judgment of God is not something that Christians hold with fear. It's actually something they'll proclaim as a sign of hope. For John and his Christian readers, judgment is something to hope for. So if you look back in Revelation chapter 6, it says this. Then I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then he goes on to say this later on in 16. Then the angel heard the charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And that was the angel saying this. And then you hear the response, like a worship service, like a call to worship. The angels say, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, who are and who were. And then those under the altar, the congregation, heard and said this, yes, Lord God Almighty, True and just are your judgments. For John in Revelation, judgment and wrath is not about fear for God's people. Judgment and wrath is about hope. And there are many Christians that will talk about and plead for the justice of and judgment of God to come into the world as good news because they've been on the wrong side, the underside of justice. They've been acted towards unjustly. So, justice, according to John, it is coming for the empire. But in chapters 15 and 16, 
Justice and God's judgment is coming for those who use, who, who, who trust in that empire and their power and their authority and the way they exploit others and subjugate others through violence. For God's justice to be revealed, it must first come to those who cooperate with the empire, promote the empire, and therefore enjoy the privileges and powers they receive from the empire. They must be allowed to experience terrible consequences for their choices so that they may repent. And all that word repent means is change. So that justice may happen. Justice is coming later in Revelation for the empire. But this is all those who've trusted and participated in it. And so the seven plagues correspond to the seven sins, I guess, of the empire. And the first one we find in 16, chapter 16, verse 2. It says this, And the first, and then I saw, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. So if you remember way back earlier, the trumpet sound, which is the announcement of God's will, now they're going to execute it. They're going to carry it out. And so he says, Go and pour out the seven bowls of wrath on the earth. And it says in verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And if you go back to 13, there's a lot of imagery in 13 that may give us a clue about what this judgment is about. In, ver in chapter 13, verse 17, it says this, they could not, it says they, they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast and the number of its name. Part of the empire's sin is that it creates an economy that doesn't really care about everybody. It creates an economy that allows people to care about themselves and particularly those that have the most. I mean, I'm not making this up. You go read the prophets. The prophets rail about this. Isaiah and Ezekiel, they rail about what economies can do to people. They rail about how people exploit those that are at the bottom. And Rome created an enormous economy. But it didn't benefit everybody. In verse 3, it goes on to say this of chapter 16. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. And it turned into blood like that of a dead person. And every living thing in the sea died. And to give us some clue in chapter 13... Verse 3, it says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Connects it back to the sea. And where he says, It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. We talked several weeks back about the myths 
of the empire. There's lots of myths about Rome. We can talk about some more here in a minute. But one of them was this sense of the myth of violence. In fact, historians talk about, and even the historians local, that in that time talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Christ. And by the way, when the church started offering and passing the peace, it's this practice, peace be upon you, the peace of Christ be upon you. Sometimes I begin my sermon, the peace of Christ be upon you. That was a direct, that was a direct counter myth to the idea that Rome is the secure of peace. Only Christ secures that. And so you have Roman emperors that they build statues to them on the hill of Mars in Rome, which Mars is the god of war. And you have Pax, the goddess of peace, who's dressed in armor. And Victorious, the goddess of victory, who's side by side with the Roman Empire, who is in full armored gear. One of the ways to tell about the kind of power of an emperor is can they provide peace? But all their peace comes with a cost. The empire is incredibly violent. And it sheds lots of blood in order to provide peace. What is the Pax Romana for some is definitely not peace for all. Then he goes on in verse 4. He says this, The third angel poured out his his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And in chapter 13, it says this about the beast. It says it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. One of the things that we use, the language that we use for Christianity, I mean for, for, for uh, the kingdom of God, is this Greek word basilia, right? Which is actually where the word basilica comes from. There's a whole story about all that. But we're familiar with terms like that. We've heard it, the basilia, it's the Greek term. It means kingdom. And it wasn't Jesus that just began using the word kingdom. By the time Jesus came on the scene, this word, basilia, belonged to Rome. They would just say basilia, and everybody knew what you were talking about. It was inscribed in important places all across the Roman Empire, and it meant that the Roman Empire reigns. They bring economic security. They bring peace and order. And therefore, you should put your hope in Rome. Lots and lots of people did. But then in verse 8, it goes on to say this. 
the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. This is really weird stuff. Lisa, you're totally right about this. It's just odd. Right, but this is apocalyptic language. And so maybe we get a clue from 1313, back in, back in chapter 13, where he's talking about the beast. And he says, and the second beast performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. And it was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. One of the things that the beast does is take on divine qualities. It's using all this language about, you know, this, this pre-modern bringing down the sun, right? And then he brings the judgment. Do you see that the parallels here? He brings the judgment. He uses the same things, the same language that he does in 13, right? To bring about this kind of language about what kind of judgment and what this judgment is for. And because the empire or the beast demands, it, it has this sense about it. Even though Rome explicitly at times says, we're God. We're from the gods. This is the God's will right here standing in front of you. This is the reign of God standing right in front of you, the kingdom. Even when it doesn't say it explicitly, even when it doesn't use that, it has this sense that, that it demands the type of allegiance that could only be given to God. Allegiance must be given to Rome. And by the way, Christians died in the first and second century because they refused to give that allegiance to Rome, by the way. He goes on in verse 10, says, the fifth angel poured out his bowl and on the throne of the beast he poured out his bowl and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And then in verse 2 of chapter 13, says, the beast I saw resembled a leopard but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like a lion, like that of a lion, like a beast. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne. And he gave him great authority. One of the reasons why Christians gave their lives is because at different times, not, not all the time, but at different times, there was what was called the cult of emperor worship that happened to where statues or images of the emperor who proclaimed themselves to be from God and sometimes of God even used the term son of God for himself even before Jesus came and that you were to give pin some incense and pay homage and have faith that he was the benefactor fact that it was proclaimed that he created justice and peace it's amazing you read these manuscripts and you read some of these inscriptions and you think 
hey, they're quoting scripture here. No, they're, they're not quoting scripture. They're using language that sounds like the gospel. They're using it for the Roman emperor. It created these cults of personalities to where that's my guy. He's my guy. He's the one that's going to bring everything and make it right. He's the one that's going to save us. He's the one that's going to actually do X, Y, and Z for us. In fact, this cult of personality, bowls of judgment get poured out on that. And then in verse 12, it says this. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for kings from the east. Now, kings of the east reference probably to enemies of Rome. That when the rivers dried up, there's no barrier now. They can come and invade. And this is a judgment on a belief and a myth that was in Rome, that Rome and the Roman Empire was eternal. Anybody know the nickname of the city of Rome even to today? It's referred to sometimes as the eternal city, even today. And that's not just because it's been around for over 2,000 years. It's because this myth that it's eternal. I mean, their coins used to say something like this, the people of Rome forever. And sometimes there were coins of the goddess Eternitus, which you hear the word eternity. She would be holding the moon and the sun, which are symbols of eternity, that they would last forever. And I remember hearing this from Randy Harris one time, a good friend of mine. Just reflecting on allegiances and thinking about Rome and thinking about other empires of the world. He says, why in the world would you pledge allegiance to something that's not eternal? I have a, an acquaintance, Jonathan Stormont. He's a good preacher. I just saw, literally saw this on, this morning on, uh, on Twitter. He wrote this. He goes, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to us. And he says this, vote with allegiance to Christ and as, and as if America will one day be a footnote in God's new creation. It's not eternal. It will not last forever. But finally, in 17, the seventh says this, the seventh plague. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. 
the last bowl is saying, it's done. Now, there are many of us in this room that have experienced things in life that have caused you to ask the question over and over and over again, Lord, how long? That is a faithful question. Good and faithful servant. And the answer to that question is this. In, in, in chapter 6, he goes, just a little while longer. Because when God brings his judgment, it brings hope to those that ask the question, Lord, how long? How long will it not be right? And I guarantee you, if you've lived long enough, everyone in the room has asked that question. Lord, how long? Come and make it right. Lisa, I know you've asked that question in your life and your line of work. I know you have. And that is a faithful question. Lord, how long? And here's the promise. Is that it is done. But here's the problem. Even though God's judgment has already been done, even though it is a sure thing, even though it can be counted on, life is still not fair, right? It's still not fair. And so I think one of the calls for us today in ways of thinking about judgment, not as fear, but judgment as hope, is to act out God's judgment as an action of hope. That God's people are to act out God's good and faithful judgments as actions of hope. Here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we do it with violence. Violence in Revelation is a mark of the beast, not a mark of God's people. And nowhere in Revelation is violence attributed to to God's people. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And they wait to say, God, when are you going to make it right? But here is how God's people can make it, can, can live out that action in hope. God's judgments have been pronounced, it is done. So we are to live out that good news and hope of God's judgments, God's promised future, as if it is the way the world will be by working towards justice for the poor and those who are oppressed. That is a sign of hope in God's judgment to come because it's done. It's coming. It's on the way. The question is, can you and I live into the reality that God has already pronounced the world will be made right. That we work without violence to bring justice to those who cry out in silence 
and in public, Lord, how long? This is how we make God's judgment to be a sign of hope for all. Let's stand.